So I, I'm very glad that you're here this morning. I'm also, if there are any visitors who aren't followers of Jesus, who don't believe in Jesus, I really want to strongly encourage you to listen carefully. Uh, because I hope that I will be able to communicate to you something greater than the accumulated traditional wisdom of our culture or any psychological insights we may have gained, or quite frankly, any knowledge or technical innovation that might cause us to hope. Uh, I believe the only source, true source of hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look today at hope, and particularly at a phrase that caught my attention out of Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. <clears throat> but with no further ado then, on that score, we're going to read um, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Uh, right through to the end of the chapter. It's uh, lengthy, but I think it's... One of the practices I've made uh, is anytime I hear somebody speak and they make reference to a verse, and I will make reference to multiple verses, uh, if, as James says, if one of them impresses you, go home, read the whole chapter you find that verse in. Okay, find out what it's connected to. Find out what it points you to. Find out if I truly reflected what the Word of God actually says, okay? That's your homework assignment. Nobody's checking, so, you know, if it's not monitored, it's optional. But it's a very good option to exercise, let's put it that way. Okay, let's begin. Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord." pleasing him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I'm going to drop down to verse 25. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Now, at this time of year in particular, do you have any hopes for the future? You know, have you heard or even said, I hope this year is better than last year? Or maybe you said, I hope this year is not as bad as last year. You know, depending on whether you're the half full or half empty type person, you know. But I wonder how many of us have thought that, maybe not in so many words. You think of it personally. What are you facing personally that you hope improves? Or, you know, James has mentioned, and uh, we are asking people to pray for, uh, God's leading and direction on a place to meet. Because as of a certain date in the new year, we will not be meeting here. But we don't know where we're going. Now, if you're following me on the road, that's often the case. But here, it's a little bit more important. Right? But what about as you look around us, as you look in our culture, as, as a nation, or as a global community, what we face? Do you have hope? Do you think things will improve? You know, what are, and and if, if we do have hope, what are we hoping in? Because that's what I want to look at today. One source I read in preparation for today wrote this. Hope is a psychological necessity with or without rational grounds. Now, I would have a little bit of a problem with that. I agree with them in that hope is a psychological necessity. Without hope, we will die. If you don't have hope, there's no reason to work for something. For what reason? There's no hope. There's no purpose, right? So that's what I want to look into. So what is hope? Well, there is a common or general meaning of hope that refers to all of us to a certain extent. It is our experience for something and longing for something that is individual, elusive, and uncertain. It's individual in this sense, is that how many of us, if we were to talk to one another and, and you know, I would say to you, here are my hopes for the future, for the next year, 
And you would reciprocate and tell me, well, here are my hopes for the future this next year. How many of them do you think we would have the same hope? Now, I want to put it in a different way. I don't know how many of you are sports fans, and that's okay. You'll still be accepted into the kingdom of God. Um, But if you were to go to a Vancouver Canucks game, or if you have ever been to one, especially when their opponents are either the Maple Leafs from Toronto or the Canadians from Montreal, you will often see the hopes and desires expressed in cheering. And there will be a lot of cheering for the opposing teams. Because as individuals, we have different hopes. My hope, no matter how faint, is that the Canucks will win the Stanley Cup sometime in my lifetime. (laughs) Right? Whereas the fans of those other teams, they have other hopes, don't they, for the outcome of that game. So our hopes are individual in in a common, general sense. I think we would agree with that. But they're also elusive. And what do I mean by this? Well, they may change over time, right? How many of you have ever hoped for something and achieved it, gained that, gained the object of what your hope was, and then found out or thought, you know what, I really don't want this. You know, you think of it in education. Do you know how many people who earn a degree, how many of them actually work in the field that they trained in at best? At best, and this is excluding doctors and lawyers, people like that, 29%. 29%. And that's if you live in a large major center. It drops if you live in a smaller center. They gained what they hoped for, and then for whatever reason, they didn't use it. But also, they're uncertain. They're uncertain because they may or may not happen. You know, uh, I remember my first year of college, I went to a school, and they had a school newspaper back then. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it would be a big sheet about three times the size of this on paper, printed. You did not have to use a scroll or anything like that. You just turned the pages. Okay, and it had in big, bold print, Welcome Freshies. And then below it, it had 33% of you will never graduate. You know, they were instilling hope in us. I'm sure of it. So we don't know whether they will, the outcome will be gained, what we're looking for, what we're hoping for. But also, we may gain something that has unintended consequences. You know, and this is a variation slightly on the elusiveness of it. You know, you get in, you get trained in something, and you start to use your training. But you think to yourself, you know, this isn't exactly what I had hoped for. It didn't bring me the sorts of satisfaction or fulfillments that I was looking for. So these all slightly overlap and have slightly different nuances. But it's generally a common. Now, we don't have any help if we look toward the ancient writers or ancient wisdom. And that's one of the things I want to contrast. The ancient wisdom and what it says about hope and a biblical hope or a Christian hope. I'm going to look at and quote to you from a Stoic philosopher named Seneca. 
And actually, he lived around the same time as the Apostle Paul. He lived from 4 BC to 65 AD. Paul wrote the book of Colossians here in around 60 to 62 AD. So this is a contemporary. And this is what he writes about hope. Limiting one's desires actually helps to cure one of fear. Cease to hope, and you will cease to fear. Widely different as fear and hope are, the two of them march in unison like a prisoner and the escort he is handcuffed to. Fear keeps pace with hope, both belonging to a mind in suspense, to a mind in a state of anxiety through looking into the future. Both are mainly due to projecting our thoughts far ahead of us instead of adapting ourselves to the present. At best, Seneca could say that hope was an uncertain good. Now this contrasts remarkably, just astoundingly, with the vision of hope that Paul gives us in the first chapter of Colossians alone. If that's all we had, I could still make that statement. But if you take a look at Romans chapter 8, where we see another bundling of the word hope, it is outstanding the differences between Christian hope and the common general hope that we all share. So let's take a look. We're going to drop back into... Ah, excuse me. I'm, I'm, unlike uh, the waiting room, I'm trying to jump forward quite fast. Um, <clears throat> I think this tension also is exacerbated at Christmas time. Now, you, you think of all the carols. Think of carols. How many carols do you sing where hope has been fulfilled? Or how many of them do you sing where that longing, that desire to see hope fulfilled is expressed? Right? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. You know? Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Are you still hoping for that? Are you still waiting for that? I am. I also want to cite and thank Jordan. He gave me a great example of this. A great example of the tension that arises when we have hope. You know, I want you to understand that. The more you hope, the more you will feel a sense of tension. Because you will see the difference between what you hope for and where you are living at right now. And it will cause you to wonder, A, will I ever get there? And it will also cause you to ask, how am I ever going to get there? Right? Both the method and the ability to get to implement that method. You think of Mary. That was what Jordan was speaking on last week. If you didn't hear that message, it will be on our website. Go listen to it. And, you know, it, it stunned me as I was listening to it. That's one of the things that, that the Lord began to impress upon me. Look at the tension she must have faced. You think of the conversation she had with the angel, Gabriel, and, and what Gabriel said to her. Now, we all focus on the fact that, man, it's astounding, the virgin birth, and it is. I'm not minimizing that. But you think of the other things that he said to her. He said that you, someone who is unknown, living in as we might call it, the boondocks of her country, are going to give birth to a son who is going to become the ruler of Israel. 
And then, not only will he become the ruler, his kingdom will never end. You know, and, and Jordan pointed out, you know, she pondered the introduction that she got from the, you know, sort of the, hi, I'm Gabriel. You know, she pondered this, you are highly favored. She thought about that. I'm sure she had a lot of thoughts on what he said in addition to that greeting. But not only that, then you, you keep going in the story. Luke chapter 2, you think of the shepherds and how they would have recounted their experience of seeing the glory of God, the visible light and glory of God manifested vis visually to them, publicly. And what the angels said to them. And they come and report this. And this is after Jesus' birth. And then they take Jesus to the temple to dedicate him and to have him circumcised. And the prophecies given by Anna, but mainly by Simeon. And I don't see how a sense of tension could not have been in her life and, and a great sense of tension up until the point of the resurrection. You think of this, this one line. This one line struck me as I read it in Luke chapter 2, that Simeon closes his prophecy, this great prophecy about what Jesus will do. And he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul. Now, how many of you would like that? You know, somebody praying for you, trying to encourage you and give you hope. And they say, a sword will pierce your own soul. You know, so... Never think that as we get a grasp on it, as we are encouraged by what it is we hope for, who it is we hope in, quite frankly, and the value of it, the, the glory of it, in fact, do not think that you will be free from attention. The more you understand it, the greater it will become because you will notice and perceive the difference between where you are and where you are going. Okay. So let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to drop down into particularly verse 5. But I'll back up a little bit here. Because, so Paul is saying, this is him telling them what he prays for them. He says, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. The very first thing you notice about Christian hope as opposed to a general sense of hope. The object of Christian hope, the what we desire is already in place for us. It's not something that we have to create. It's not something we have to work for. It is, in fact, we can translate that phrase, reserved. It is already reserved for you in heaven. The other thing that strikes me about this is that notice that simply to have a hope, hope is like a plant. It will manifest certain things along with it. If you have it, you will see a couple of things. Faith and love. Now, does anybody ever recognize or hear an echo of that triad? Faith, hope, and love? 
Okay? Lots of things here. Too many things, quite frankly. So our hope is reserved. That sense of being stored up. Paul writes in the only other place in the New Testament where we see that kind of phrase. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he writes this. Listen to this. Listen to this. Now there is in store for me, or there is stored up for me, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. Do you long for Jesus' appearing? If so, you have a great reward ahead of you. Okay, we're going to drop down another few verses into the chapter. Verse basically 9 through 14. But I'll focus in just on a couple of phrases. Here, Paul is actually praying for the Colossians. He prays that they will have a knowledge of God's will. That the knowledge of this will comes through the wisdom and understanding of God's spirit. And all of this is so that we might live a life worthy. And he writes this phrase, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. And then he further describes that kingdom as the kingdom of the son he loves. So it's the next thing about Christian hope. Building, actually, on the reservation idea. Because it's not like you reserving a hotel room or buying a plane ticket and thinking you have a seat reserved for you and you show up and you find out that both are occupied by somebody else. Right? It's that God has qualified you. He has reserved what you're hoping for and he's qualified you for it. He's, in essence, he's paid for it. So, you know, contrary to all those calls you get about receiving a free gift from this organization or that organization, this is actually free. Okay? But he qualifies us. But notice that he provides for us. He calls us to a destination, but he also provides us the power to get there. He provides us with the power of, as Paul writes, his glorious might. And the glorious might gets us, enables us to travel from where we're at to the kingdom of light. That's very important. You think of where in the Old Testament and New Testament, doesn't matter, where the visible presence of God is seen by men, what accompanies it? Light. Brilliant light. As a matter of fact, light so brilliant that in many cases, it's shrouded in cloud. So it doesn't blind people or it doesn't you know, totally disorient them. 
So we're going to drop down again. And this one isn't as clear here. This is where I would recommend you read Romans chapter 8 in addition to this passage. In verses 19 and 20 of Colossians. Notice that. Uh, and I want to say here too, before, before I go further, this comes after a passage that we do not have time to cover. Uh, it is the most, uh, or one of the most stunning examples of where we see Jesus identified as God in all of the New Testament. And we read it, you know, that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. Things like that. Or that he is a ruler over everything. You know, all of creation. All of, of whether things visible or invisible. All of those statements. And then after that, this is what we read. Well, right here. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The hope we have has not just personal implications. It doesn't even have just, say, a small application to a small group of people. It has cosmic. It's larger even than the planet we live on, quite frankly. It's amazing. It's stunning, actually. Especially when you compare it to the Old Testament. You know, you, when you read Old Testament and New Testament, there's a certain amount of continuity. God provided in the Old Testament what the people needed to get to the promised land. He provides for us what we need to get into the kingdom of light. But look at the differences, the discontinuity. The Israelites were saved from a physical enemy who had enslaved them. They came out and they were going to a physical geographic location. And it was well defined. Uh, however many of the arguments are today over what that size was or whether or not it even should exist, which is a different question. But it had a physical limitation. God is delivering us not just from a physical oppressor. He is delivering us from a spiritual oppressor as well. He is not providing for us a kingdom that is limited to a geographic space. He is providing a kingdom where we will live in his presence. It's astounding. And the more we understand that, the greater our strength will be, but the also, again, like I come back to, the greater our tension will be in the experience of that. Third thing, you drop down, verse uh, Colossians 21 through 23. And it says this. Um, and this is, uh, how do I put it? This is something that we don't see as clearly, although it is there in the, New in the Old Testament, but perfectly clear in the New Testament. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, the object of our hope is what? Is that we are reconciled. 
God has paid everything that was necessary to fulfill our debt to God. So we are, notice that, holy in his sight. We are free of blemish. No one can accuse us of anything. And that's the hope held out to us in the gospel. And finally, and this, in fact, was the phrase that caught my attention one morning as I read this, in Colossians 1, 25 through 27. But particularly, I'm just going to read 26 and 27. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people, to them God has chosen to make known, to the, make known, hang on, make known among the Gentiles, excuse me, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I have to do one thing right here, and this is for kids, if there are any kids taking notes, and I really can't see you that clearly anyway. But on your little page, you will have a box that has no label. It's called, might be called the secret box. And right in that secret box, glory. It's what I hope we can really get a grasp on today, at least initially, is the glory of God. What does that mean? What is God's glory? Okay. We sang about it, but do we know what it is? To this, I would uh, encourage you to YouTube John Piper on the glory of God, because this is where I got this information. You know, I had it. You know how sometimes you, you vaguely have a grasp on something, but you're not sure, and then you begin to do a little bit of research on it, and you understand, yeah, you were correct, but you only had a small grasp on it. God's glory, if we were to try to define it, boils down to this. It is the public display of his holiness, of his infinite value, or of the infinite value, I'm sorry, of his perfections. And it is always accompanied by a radiance, a brilliant, brilliant light. You know, you think of all the people who have, where we have a record of them experiencing the presence of God. But I want to, as we spend time on this, we're not going to get far from this idea of hope. If you were to turn your attention back to verses 9 through 14, this is the strengthening that we have. This is the strengthening that God provides. Notice this. It is described as God's glorious might. So why would Paul use that descriptor? Why would he use that adjective to describe the might? Why didn't he just say, well, God's going to give you all the power you need to get to the kingdom of God. Why put that description to it? The glorious might of God. And I think it, it points us to this. It points us to the fact that we are called to be holy. That we are called to display the holiness of God. You know, think of what is the command that you read in the Old Testament that God gives to his people? He says, be holy because I am holy. And in the New Testament, 
We're hearing the same thing, but God is also saying, I am going to give you my glorious, my holy might to do that, to accomplish it. It's a preparation so that when the object of your hope, when we finally get to secure and to experience the fullness of our hope, we will not die, quite frankly. Because it is something that, A, we don't think about enough. Do you ever sometimes think of the passages where people are in God's presence? Do you ever think about what happens? Have you ever noted what happens to those people? You know, they run the gambit. I tell you, you, you talk about an emotional roller coaster. I think the other thing that we need to see is, is that Paul puts that power and he tells us exactly what it's for. It's so that we can live a life worthy of God, to please him in every way. You know, we all are familiar with, and we, we had a whole series here on the gifts of the Spirit. That's making visible the working of God right, in ways that are beyond our capabilities. Healing, quite frankly, in me having coherent enough thoughts to speak to you. Okay? Um, things like that. But you know what we also need the power of God for? We need it to endure. We need it to be patient, waiting for the Lord's return. We need that strength. We need that focus. Every day that we get out of bed and go about our obligations, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's as a parent or as a spouse or as a child or as an employee, or as an employer, whatever that is, we need God. We need to keep that in focus or with reference to the glory, the holiness of God. But think about the people that you can. You know, just to name a few: Isaiah, Aaron, Moses, Daniel, uh, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. You, you go look these things up. You know, in some cases, people died. You think of the case of Aaron. His sons decide, oh yeah, we got this worship thing down. We'll just, we'll just add our own take on it. And they go in and, and it says that they presented unauthorized fire and God smote them dead. And Moses speaks to Aaron after God speaks to him. And the Lord tells him, you know what? I will be seen as holy and I will be honored in the sight of my people. It's something we need to really carefully consider, my friends, coming into the presence of the holiness of God. But one of the other striking examples is Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read this. <clears throat> and I'm going to... Well, maybe you're not all familiar with it. Isaiah goes into the temple. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I can't establish it directly from the text, but I think the reference to the train of God's robe is to shield Isaiah from the glory of God. But he does go on to say this. 
Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his, what? Glory. Not holiness. Glory. What's Isaiah's immediate response? He feels a sense of, quite frankly, personal danger. Woe is me. Why? Because I have unclean lips and I live in a land of unclean lips. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that strikingly familiar. Uh, if you have ever driven with me, or if you have ever been around me when I've hit myself with a hammer, and I'm a carpenter, it happens all the time, you will know that I am a man of unclean lips. And I would dare say that we live in a land of unclean lips. But do we ponder what it would mean for us to come into the presence of a holy God in our lives? Because I think that's what we need to do. But I don't want to leave on that. Because this is the hope that we have. And I want to do it, I want to present this to you by comparing Exodus 33. Moses is there, and this is well into them coming out of Egypt. And Moses says to the Lord, now show me your glory. And it's fascinating, the response. The Lord says to him, you know, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, but you cannot see my face. Why? Because if you do, you will die. That's what he says to him. Now, you will also notice I'm opening up my Bible now. That's because I missed this in my notes, just to let you know. If you look at Revelation chapter 22, but after my first run through this, I also do want to read Revelation chapter 21. But we read this. And now I won't be able to find it. Aha. Revelation 21, you read this. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of the God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. And he goes on to describe how there will be no wickedness there, no evil there. Revelation 22, we read this, and this is even more astounding because it says the same idea. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. That's the hope we have. We will be able to live in the presence of God, see his face and not die. And he has provided all we need to experience that. So I just want to recap for us. The Christian hope that we have is a hope that is revealed. In other words, it is made known to us in the gospel. 
And what is the gospel? The gospel, according to this chapter, is that God the Father has qualified you to inherit this. God the Father has reconciled you to himself by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And God the Father has granted to you his glorious power by his spirit to walk in a way that will please him and you will enter into an eternal state with him where you will live before him. So I'm going to close my message by reading Romans 15, 13 as a blessing upon all of us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.